You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We good? All right. So it has been said that suffering can be described in three ways. That there's external suffering, there's internal suffering, and there's intentional suffering. External suffering is fairly easy to try and grasp. It's the hostile forces working against us, sometimes of a spiritual nature, sometimes from other humans, but always reflective of the reign of sin and death at work in the world. These are the spiritual harms, the physical harms. These are the relational harms that we carry. And we seek help from the Lord. We seek help from the Lord in these diseases and these sicknesses. We seek help from the Lord in these relationship struggles. We seek help from the Lord utilizing the gifts that the Lord has given us in the world. Gifts like medicine and the medical care. Gifts like therapy and counseling. Gifts like fervent prayer and leaning into the promises of God for peace and joy in the midst of it all. It's the external suffering. We're familiar. But there's the internal suffering. We're familiar with this too. These are the traumas, the abuses, the harms, the hurts we carry, the ones we don't speak of. These are the betrayals, the insecurities, the doubts, the shame. These are the anxieties and the fears that we carry and that we sometimes even bury. And we seek help from the Lord here, utilizing the gifts the Lord has given us in the world. Again, from counseling or therapy to talking to people who love us and know us, to fervent prayer, to leaning into the promises of God for peace and joy in the midst of it all. And then there's the intentional suffering. And this is the one we least, we are least familiar. See, intentional suffering is the suffering that Christ suffered. Intentional suffering is the suffering we choose when we enter into the suffering of others. That's the intentional suffering. So when Paul writes, I share in the sufferings of Christ, when Paul writes that we should share in the sufferings of Christ, what Paul is not saying is that we should like, rejoice that we struggle. What Paul is saying is that we should enter into other people's suffering because we know what we have. We know who we are because of whose we are. We know that this victory and that this love that we have in Jesus Christ is ours and it is everyone's. And we enter into the suffering with others in solidarity of faithful presence to be with them in the hope that we could see Christ's reign break out in the midst of their suffering. Are you with me? It's why we name the things we do in this church. It's why we speak to the things we speak to in this church. It's why we have days like today. We choose to enter in, to name hurts, and join God in the work of peacemaking and human flourishing. Beloved, the word koinonia that translates fellowship in your Bible, so when you say I have fellowship with the church, you know what that word fellowship means? It means joint partnership. There's an intimacy to that word. So when you say I have fellowship with the church, you're not saying we hung out at a hall and ate a meal. You're saying that I'm into joint partnership with the church. Beloved, are we? When we say that I have fellowship with Jesus, we're saying I have a joint partnership with Jesus. Beloved, are we in joint partnership? That's more than a place. Like John said last week, church isn't a place we attend. It's a people that we are. And like Garrett said the week before, and we unashamedly, even trembling, beg for God to bring healing in life. Into the broken things. 
And as we lean into the gifts the Lord has given us in the world, we lean into prayer, we lean into praise, and we must not forget to lean in to the declaration of Scripture and prayers and praise and lament together. So I want to start with this text in Luke 4. This is Jesus in the temptation story. I want you to read it with me, please, and let's read it carefully. Luke 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Who was he tempted by? And he was full of the Holy Spirit, all right? So there's your contrast now. And then Jesus ate nothing all at all that time and became very hungry. And then the devil said to him, so who's speaking? The adversary, the devil. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him what? No. And here, what, did, what were the next words? The scriptures say. Everybody say, the scriptures say. People do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, beloved, please catch this. Because we love to say God is in control. God is in control. And my question to that is, what do you mean when you say that? So here's what it says. He says that the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give anyone I please. What does that tell you? So who's in charge of the kingdoms? Yeah, now you're confused, right? Unless you've been here a hot minute. The devil. Devil can't give something the devil doesn't have. I will give them to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, what did he say? The scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you were the son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say. Now, what do you see the devil doing? In this battle, what do you see the devil doing now? He's pointing, he's pointing to scripture. So Jesus has been fighting the temptation, fighting the battle with scripture, and so the devil's like, I'll meet you there. And look at what the devil says. The devil says, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. He's quoting Psalms. So is the devil quoting bad scripture? No. Is the devil quoting correct scripture? Just assume. Yes. Is he applying it correctly? No. But it's within a context. Because this is within a context of power. See, because that's where always, that's always where the battles are is within power. Well, Jesus says, well, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. That's like the ultimate mic drop for Jesus. And when the devil had finished tempting him, he left him until the next opportunity came. You see what the devil is doing? The devil is tempting Jesus with worldly forms of power. You see that in the text? Because that's always the seduction. Power to use to my advantage. Authority for me. Power for me. For my good. And when we think about healing, when we think about hurt, and we remember the power and authority that has been granted to us through Christ, it is important that we remember that is not wielded just for us. That is declared to the glory of God for the good of others, of which we become beneficiaries. 
See, Jesus was fasting and praying for what would be three years of ministry, and it would be filled with great joy and excitement, sorrow and disappointment. And we see this. We see this sorrow and disappointment because right in the very next story, Luke tells us of a time when Jesus stepped into his hometown. Jesus stepped into his hometown, and he offers a word to his hometown crowd, and they reject him. And not only do they reject him, they try to throw him off a cliff. So this battle is real. Do you see? The battle in Luke 4 in the beginning is with the enemy directly, and then the battle is with his hometown people, his loved ones. What does that tell you? That the battle will come directly from the enemy. The battle will come from within inside. And sometimes the battle will come from people who call themselves your friends. The battle, though, still comes. The battle still comes. But how does Jesus fight the battle? He resists and he quotes scripture. The word, the incarnate word of God, who is Jesus, uses the words of God, that is the scriptures, to declare God's authority over the enemy's seductive tactics and schemes. And this makes sense because in Ephesians 6, verse 13, you can see it on the screen. Paul talks about this battle, this battle and how we're to be waging our defense and our efforts and really our offense in this battle. Too many times in Christianity, we talk about battle in a defensive posture. It is a both and. Look at Ephesians 6 verse 13. Therefore put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to what? Resist the who? Enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle you will be what? Come on y'all read with me. And then what does he say? Stand your ground putting on the belt of what? And the body armor of God's what? For shoes put on what? That comes from what? Which is the gospel, so that you will be fully prepared. Beloved, we have to know the story. We have to live into the gospel. The gospel isn't just something we believe so we get to go to heaven when we die. It's so that we can live our lives in such a way that heaven comes to earth and breaks in through these things. That was Jesus' prayer. He goes, in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of what? And stop the fiery arrows of the devil, the adversary. Put on salvation as your what? Remember your liberation, beloved. And then, he says, and take what? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God, which is another way of saying the promises of God. The declarations of God. And then what does he say? Pray in the Spirit at what? On what? And also, stay alert and be what? In your prayers for who? Everywhere. You see that? So, do you notice something about these texts? All of these things are defensive tools except for two offensive weapons. Beloved, we have two offensive weapons. What are they? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The promises of God, the declarations of God, and what? What did you say, Joyce? And prayer. Those are our two weapons. Scripture and prayer. Scripture read aloud and declared in the assembly of the saints in addition to the offering of communal prayers are critical to our lives. Sure, we can study the scriptures individually, and we should. We can pray individually, and we should. But the communal is just as, if not more, important. 
Because the battle that you're in is never isolated from me. The battle that David and Gabrielle are in isn't isolated from us. We share in that. Right? The battle that Joyce may be in, the battle that Ian may be in, the battle that Tanya may be in, the battles that we're in together, we share together. Because we are members of one another. That's what the Bible says. We can't carry these things alone. And so Scripture read aloud and declared in the public assembly of the saints in addition to the offering of communal prayers are critical. And it's why the Scriptures often mention how Christians were regularly gathering together. I want you to listen to the writer of Hebrews who reminded us of this importance. Now, I was whipped with this verse growing up. This verse has all kinds of feelings to me. But it's still true nonetheless. Hebrews 10 verse 23, let us hold on to what? The confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Beloved, sometimes we aren't faithful, but guess who always is? And let us consider one another. When we come together, we ought not come together going, man, I hope there's a word for me. Man, I hope there's a song for me. Man, I hope there's a prayer for me. What does this say? We come together going, man, I hope there's a prayer for Ethan. I hope there's a word for Kevin. I hope there's a song for Jesse. And I hope that I get to participate in that too. We consider one another when we come. Too many times in this consumerist culture, we come into church thinking it's an event and a gathering where we just want to get what we want. And that is not the call. The call is to let us consider one another in order to what? Provoke love and good works. Good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Beloved, when we miss the gathering of God's people, we are actually hurting ourselves. I know that in our culture, it's just about going to church. And I know in our culture, it's about, hey, it's a nice beach day. Or maybe it's, you know, I'm a little tired. But the thing is, if we understand that when we wake up, we wake up to a world at war, we will understand that we can't fight this battle alone. And we aren't meant to. And who knows if the Holy Spirit of God will have a word for me through Joyce, a word for me through Kim, a word for me through Dean. Who knows if God might not have a word for Dean or Kim or Joyce through me. The early church, this wasn't even an option. It is in our gatherings that we remember again our hope and renew our confession that Jesus is Lord so that we are provoked for love and good works. The gathering is to encourage us, inspire us, and convict us because ultimately we are always in a battle. And this isn't a battle for our nation or a battle for our society. It is a battle for our hearts and minds. And as a result, beloved, it's a battle for the church's witness. Right now in this country and in this world, people are leaving the church in droves. Because we're too busy fighting the culture battle instead of the right battles. There's a battle for the church's witness in our society and in our nation because there's a battle for our hearts. And coming together is God's design to pull us away from our tendencies to fight the wrong battles and pull us away from our tendencies to lean too heavily into individualism and pull us toward fighting the right battles and not fighting them alone. So we no longer describe the church as individuals who come together as a community. Do you hear that? That puts the emphasis in the wrong order. 
The church is a community, a household of individuals. You see the difference? And this is good news. Because we aren't isolated in our suffering. External, internal, or intentional. Christ is with us, reigning among us, in and by the power of the Spirit, working through each of us for our good. And that can change everything. When you know and you sense that you are not only not alone, but that God is speaking to you through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, prayers, scriptures, hugs, handshakes, hellos, how are yous, and other ways. Because we are, as Ephesians 4.25, if you'll see the screen, we are members of one another. And 1 Corinthians 12.26 says, if one part suffers, what? All the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, what? All the parts are glad. We are born into a world at war and in conflict between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, which are described biblically as Babylon. And we must remember that in the midst of nation versus nation, good versus evil, truth versus lies, beauty versus corruption, love versus fear, biblically speaking, there are ultimately two kingdoms always at work among us, and we know which one is already one, the kingdom of God. That is why Romans 5.17 says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death the rule over many. What's ruling over many? Death. The reign of sin and death. That's what this whole text talks about, the reign of sin and death. But even greater, though, there's a greater reign at work, and it's God's grace and His gift of righteousness for all who receive it, who live in what? Triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. And this battle that is for our hearts, that is for our hearts, not as just individuals, but as a community, is a battle that doesn't isolate us from anybody else with whom we share the table. This battle is real and it's always at work and we are never immune to it. We are, it's just a matter of how will we fight in it. And some of us have fallen asleep on the battle. Some of us have fallen asleep and we're sitting on our heels while the suffering all around us take place and even sometimes the suffering within us takes place and we forget that we are children of the Most High God. Where are y'all this morning? Somebody preach with me. Because this is the declaration of who we are. And I cannot just sit back and watch you suffer. Our elders and our staff, our shepherds and our staff prayed and fasted for three days for this, just to beg God, we didn't have to beg God, but just to to turn our eyes to God, to grab, to turn our attention to the God who is at work within us, just to seek God's face. Because we are not going to stand by and watch any of us die the death of a thousand cuts of suffering. We will, as a church, of God engage in the life of God together or we are no different than a social club and it's a lousy one at that with no dancing <laughs> which y'all need to change that I've been trying to get y'all to dance yeah, I'm trying about to because we know what is at stake if the kingdom of God is about justice then what do we know is going to flourish in the world in Justice. If the kingdom of God is about peace, which is human flourishing, then we know what's going to flourish. We know what's going to try and flourish in the world, right? Oppression and things that hurt 
and, and hurt and destroy bodies and hierarchies of gender and hierarchies of race and ethnicity. And if the world, if the kingdom of God is about joy, then what do we know the enemy's going to try to do? Take our joy. The question is, are we going to sit on our heels or are we going to engage? And today is a reminder to engage. To engage with the words and the promises and the declarations of God in Scripture and through the prayers of the people of God. Because what does 1 Peter 5, 8 say? Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Read it with me. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. I want to make a conclusion. I want to do a, what my old tradition used to call a, a necessary inference. I want to read something out of this text that shows me something. If Peter is saying, be sober-minded, be alert, your adversaries prowling around, resist him, be firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings that you're experiencing are being experienced everywhere, you know what I think Peter's doing? He's connecting suffering with the devil. Suffering doesn't come from God like that. Because the reign of sin and death is the one that promotes the things of sin and death. But what's the kingdom of God about? Justice, peace, and joy, and life. This isn't a battle just for me and you. This is a battle that isn't just about me and you. This is a cosmic battle. Look at the rest of the text. Verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, everybody say God himself. Will himself, say it with me. Restore, establish, strengthen, and support you even after you have suffered a little while. God, God's own self will do this. Beloved, that is good news. That is needed news. But again, it's not just about me. This is a battle on a cosmic level, level where the reign of sin and death refuses to take its losses and give in. That's why John warned the people of God this way. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is what? Read it with me. Under the control of the evil one. You see what I'm saying now? Does this make sense of the devil's temptation of Jesus? You know what Christ has done? Broken into the world with a kingdom that will defeat this kingdom that's already defeated this kingdom that is going to defeat this kingdom and that defeat will come in its fullness when Jesus comes back to collect all the citizens of his kingdom. Until then, we live in the midst of a war. Which is why the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians 6 verse 12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against what? Rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Beloved, death, disease, war, violence, corruption, fears, conspiracies, anxieties of all come, all come in the form of not just individual sins, but in institutional and structural systems that work in the world, including the social constructs of human hierarchies. And these are the things that are pressing us down and killing our souls. And we are called to engage. It is why Paul often talks about salvation in institutional and sociopolitical terms with words like kingdom and dominion. I want to say this once and for all. I am weary 
I am weary of people thinking the gospel isn't political. It isn't party political, but it is a politic. Because it's a kingdom about a kingdom with a king. And with an ethic and a way of life. Which is what Paul uses this language to demonstrate. Colossians 1 verse 13. For he has rescued us from the what? Kingdom of what? Darkness. And transferred us into the what? Kingdom of his dear son. Who purchased our liberation and forgave all our sins. And then he takes this political language of scripture. And talks about it in kingdoms and frames. The work of Jesus. As Jesus taking on our debts. And our transgressions. And giving us divine rights. As children of God. As citizens of God's kingdom. And divine liberation into a new hope. And promise of sharing in God's life and power. So he says in Colossians 2. Verses 12 through 15. Just a few verses later. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. Beloved, be baptized. And when him, you were raised to new life because you trusted what? The mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. It's kind of like a legal kind of a courtroom language and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this. In this way, say it with me. He what? Disarmed. Did he, he did what? Disarmed. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The devil is shooting at us with a squirt gun. And it still hurts. Make no mistake. But the authority, the authority of these kingdoms have been stripped. You, beloved, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, have been granted the authority of Christ. Through the blood of Jesus. Because you have been given divine rights as God's child. John 1, verse 10. He came into the world, he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Talking about Jesus. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, say it with me, he gave the right to become children of God. Too many Christians are arguing too hard about American rights and not fighting hard enough to remember our divine ones. Don't get the two twisted. Look, in the reign of sin and death, if it's taught humanity anything well, it's how to spill blood. It's how to commit violence and take human life. And so God in Christ meets us in our vilest and worst and submits himself to show us that our ideas of power inflicted in the form of violence is not only useless, but ultimately ineffective and reflective of the reign of sin and death. Death may come to us and we may inflict it upon another, but Christ has overcome it. And so no matter what death brings, beloved, we don't have to fear. No, not only do we need not fear eternal death here, we as Christ's beloved need not feel fear death here. Christ has overcome I want you to read Hebrews 2, verse 14, 15 with me, and I'm about to wrap up. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in this, meaning flesh and blood, so that through his death, read this with me, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is who? The devil. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Beloved, we do not have to fear. Fear is what drives out love. And when we fear, we cannot fully give or know love.
This is why we need to reclaim the realities of our faith that are real and that we feel in our bodies, that we see in our world, and we engage it in the power and by the authority of Christ, and we plead the blood of Jesus over it. Now, I know that's weird for some of us in our traditions, this idea of pleading the blood of Jesus, but you need to remember that it is by the blood of Jesus that we are cleansed. That is why when you've heard me pray over people for healing, I've always said, by the blood of Jesus that cleanses and liberates us, bring healing. It is by the blood of Jesus. We plead the blood of Jesus with our lips to manifest the reality of this promise in our lives. Are you with me on that? Like you can say you love somebody and say it in your heart, but if they don't, if you never hear you say it, they won't know that you love them. You may show up, but you've got to put words to that love. We plead the blood of Jesus. Why? Because of what Hebrews says. This is the last verse. Hebrews 9. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of his creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new promise so that those who are called might receive the promises of an eternal life. What in the world does this mean? Here's the short version. For, for, for generation after generation after generation in ancient Near Eastern cultures and even in all across the world, people understood that life is in blood. And they believed that the only way you give life back to something is to sacrifice life for it. And so the spilling of blood and like sacrifices of animals and in some cultures sacrifices of humans was an understood thing, these blood sacrifices. And so you know what God does? God enters into that imagination. God enters into that imagination because that's a pretty vile imagination. We're no different. We spill blood in different ways. We spill blood all the time. We sacrifice people for our lives all the time. We just call it war or defense. God enters into that imagination and sacrifices himself with his own blood. And just like in the blood of Passover put upon the door frames of those who are the people of God so that death moves past them and they are liberated from the Pharaoh of their day, the blood of Jesus goes over the doorposts of our hearts and our lives and death moves over us and liberates us. Are you with me? We plead the blood of Jesus because that is how God meets us here. We come to the table, which is the bread. We come to the cup, which is the blood. The body and the blood, the bread and the cup. And we come to the table and we remember. We remember what God has done. And we remember that as Hebrews 4 says, we have a great high priest who has entered heaven. And this high priest understands our weaknesses and has faced all the things we do so we can come boldly to the throne 
of our gracious God and receive mercy and find grace to help us when we need it. And we remember the declaration of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 that the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that set itself against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so we come pleading the blood of Jesus over the lives of people in our church today. We come for the next 30 minutes pleading the blood of Jesus over our own lives. We come pleading the blood of Jesus over those that come to our hearts. We plead the blood of Jesus over them in the prayer and in the belief and in the declaration and the hope that God will bring healing where there is harms, liberation where there is captivity, and hope where there is sorrow. And so we plead the blood of Jesus. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.